Okay. Why don't we kick this off? And like I said, um, I expect that a lot, we'll have quite a few more people trickling in as, as the conversation progresses. Um, Dr. Ryan Cole, I am so excited to have you here today. I'm, I know I've been following the work that you've been doing for a long time. You've been really at the tip of the spear since the very beginning, talking about the dangers of the vaccine, the necessity for early treatment, effective early treatment that we know was, was actually available and denied to the, the human population. Um, and so tonight, we're going to talk about how vaccines present a serious risk in human pathology. Obviously, your background is in pathology. And I know recently I've been hearing a lot about um, the increase or the uptick in human disease like cancers. And I know obviously this is your area of expertise. I also met Dr. Kirk Moore uh, very recently, and I know Dr. Moore has an amazing story. So as we get into this conversation, um, I'll, we'll switch gears in a bit and, and he can talk a little bit about his journey and what he's been facing as well. So with that, Dr. Cole, I want to turn it over to you and talk, let's just start, let's dive into it and talk about what you're seeing as a pathologist and why you're very concerned about these vaccines being deployed and continuously being deployed into the human population and what you're seeing uh, as it relates to different types of pathologies. Uh, thanks, Laura. Um, you know, I want to start off by uh, introducing myself. For those who don't know me, Dr. Ryan Cole, I'm board-certified anatomic and clinical pathologist, trained at the Mayo Clinic, run an independent medical lab for about 20 years. Uh, I've seen about 500,000 patients personally through the microscope diagnostically. I also have uh, about four years of emergency medicine experience, family medicine, did about two years in dermatology clinics as well, did MD-PhD work in immunology and virology. So that's who I am just by background. Uh, at the end of the day, I'm a father of six daughters, an organic farmer, and, uh, and a woodworker. I like to build boats and guitars and tables and sawmill and just kind of enjoy the quiet life on, on my farm, at least I used to before the COVID crisis hit. As far as, you know, what I do on a daily basis, um, I'm kind of in more consultation mode now, looking at autopsy cases from not just around the country, but around the world, um, investigating post-vaccine deaths, as well as, you know, looking at different blood patterns that we see in the laboratory for patients suffering chronic disease after they've received these injections. And, you know, I'm very hesitant to use the word vaccine. Uh, Quasi-vaccine is a word that Dr. Weissman uses. I kind of like that. Uh, they do they do induce an antibody. They don't really induce a, a true immune response the way one would think. Is about two weeks ago, Fauci was the third author on a paper in the esteemed journal Cell, basically saying, well, okay, mRNA vaccines didn't work too well against coronaviruses, and they aren't really a great idea against respiratory viruses. So even you know retired King Fauci himself as well as Bill Gates, who made his $500 million on BioNTech, they all just kind of backed out at the end of the day and said, well, oops. So what, what's the big oops? Um, the day they said they were going to make a, a vaccine against this virus that spread and infected so many people around the world and killed way too many because early treatments were blocked and halted so they could get away with emergency authorization. The day they said warp speed, I, I knew we had a problem because coronaviruses are a unique family of viruses. 
there are certain viruses that are very conserved in certain parts, you know, proteins of them over time really don't change. And so you can, you can, you know, try to make an immune response against those conserved areas. In, in this particular family of viruses, coronaviruses, and it, it's not just the SARS-CoV-2, there's four common cold coronaviruses that afflict humanity at just about every cold respiratory season. Um, and, We've had SARS-CoV-1, we've had MERS in the uh, Middle Middle East Arabian Peninsula, and now SARS-CoV-2. We know this was a lab leak now, which most of us knew early on based on sequences. So this family of viruses afflicts mammals as well, pigs and cows and dogs and cats and, and other mammals. And so in, in vaccine trials against many mammals, uh, we've never been able to keep up with the mutation rate changes. And when we give a shot and, and one forms antibodies, down the road, those antibodies that originally may have been neutralizing and helped stop the virus, actually when they bind but don't neutralize the virus, now help the virus Trojan horse into your immune cells. Now, now you have an immune response that's become your enemy. So early on when they said vaccine, uh, I knew we were going to have a problem. Now we have the Cleveland Clinic study that came out you know, several, several months ago that showed the more shots you get, the more you get COVID, either two to fourfold, depending on how many shots one's received. And that's because one narrows their immune response. Your immune system kind of has blinders on it and can only remember that ancestral strain of the virus that's now extinct in humanity, that Wuhan strain. Um, the BA4, BA5 are essentially extinct as well. So now we have an expired virus for extinct variants and we still have uh, employers and colleges mandating a shot for something that doesn't exist which is pure insanity from a pathology point of view in the laboratory i I was kind of coined with the the term or at least given the the credit for the term clot shot as i brought that out in a talk as i kind of went accidentally national from my my introvert behind the microscope status into speaking out against the harms of, of what I was seeing under the microscope. Certainly I saw it during, during COVID. COVID in and of itself is primarily an inflammatory disease of the blood vessels and caused clotting. And I was seeing that in biopsies under the microscope and many colleagues around the country who were seeing it and kind of, you know, stayed quiet. And I, I kind of understand why, you know, we would confer and they would say, yeah, I'm seeing a lot of clots in, in gastric biopsies or skin biopsies, et cetera. Well, the reason being the spike protein in and of itself is a, a clotting agent. Dr. Pretorius out of South Africa has written some of the seminal papers on clotting by the spike protein. So originally, you know, clot shot indeed, and it still is a clot shot. And if you go and try to find a J&J or an AstraZeneca shot anywhere around the world, they, they went by the wayside very uh, quietly because they would help form an antibody against one of your platelets. It was called an antiplatelet factor four antibody. And that's when you heard about people clotting and hemorrhaging into their brains. So the spike protein is a clotting agent, which is obviously highly concerning. Well, what else does spike protein do? Well, all sorts of bad things in the human body pathophysiologically. It causes... Um, the inability of DNA repair, it can get into your T cells, your white blood cells, one of the, the really important white blood cells in your body. 
and drop the, those counts. So you remember that AIDS, everybody was talking about CD4 cells. Well, we've seen in many patients drops in CD4 cells, CD8 cells. I'm not saying that the virus didn't do that. That certainly did. But because of the spike protein is why the virus did it. And it also does it in the shots as well. And so seeing uh, lower white blood counts was a problem and still continues to be in, in some of the vaccine-injured patients. Uh, additionally, one of the, the really concerning things is you have two, two kind of two arms of your immune system. One is called your innate immune system. Those are the immediate actors in your body. That I call them the Marines of your immune system. Your natural killer cells, your, your macrophages or Pac-Man garbage truck cells that clean things up. And then you have a, a little cell with all these little arms on it uh, throughout the body called dendritic cells. And, and they're an antigen presenting cell. And so, you know, these three main players in your innate immune system, they, they get altered when the shot, these mRNA synthetic shots are given. And your adaptive immune system, that's, that's what you hear about when people say, oh, do or don't I have antibodies? And I, I just kind of say antibody schmantibodies. What really matters is your immediate innate response. That's really the strength of your immune system. Well, we know these shots, a uh, paper early on by Dr. Fossa out of the Netherlands showed that uh, the Pfizer shot, a series of two of these, uh, was altering uh, the ability of your innate immune system to function, which altered the ability for your body to keep at bay so many different things, uh, especially other viruses. So there was an interaction with toll-like receptors, like a toll road, a toll-like receptor number seven and eight. And these are little pattern receptors that communicate with your T cells and and say, okay, we're going to remember Epstein-Barr virus or herpes family viruses or HPV virus. of these pattern receptors um, were altered and now the body couldn't um, couldn't remember what to fight off. And so now the body's saying, huh, okay, these latent viruses that hang out in our body uh, can wake up. So this is another problem we saw after the shots rolled out. And, and here's the, the big concerning one. You also have some other toll-like receptors, number three and four. And depending on the ratios of those or the activity of those, they can regulate certain types of cancers. So that, that was another concerning mechanism. I saw some early signals early on in some women's health cancers as well as melanomas in young patients. And again, people will criticize me and say, well, you know, what percentage did you see? Well, I saw a relative enough uptick after seeing 20 years worth of patients and 500,000 patients, you kind of know the patterns. And all of a sudden after the shot rollout in 21, I started seeing uh, an uptick in cancers. And, and not only that, um, as I would travel the world over the last year and a half, almost two years now, doctors from every walk of every profession would report to me, man, I've, I'm seeing these odd cancers in my younger patients or patients that have been cancer-free for two years, five years, 10 years, now have recurrent disease with uh, an aggressive course and go from nothing to widespread stage four disease very quickly. Now, now here's, here's the good news. I don't, I don't want to scare everybody. Um, Recent Zogby poll, I don't know, three, four months ago, showed out of 100 Americans, 15% had a new chronic medical condition. 
what does that mean? 85% didn't. So there's some good news. So not all batches were the same. We know that there were hot lots or, or batches that were more concentrated from the which there seems to have been more harm overall. Um, a lot of people, I don't think there were any saline shots that were given out. I, I, I don't ascribe to that hypothesis. I think a lot of the lots were just poorly manufactured. And so a lot of people got lucky and dodged a bullet. Well, additionally, uh, going kind of back to the pathologies, another concerning pattern uh, is autoimmune antibodies. There are patterns within the spike protein that are similar to human proteins. And so when one forms antibodies against the spike protein, one can also form antibodies that accidentally think that your tissue is now foreign. And so we've seen increases in arthritis. We've seen increases in psoriasis. We've seen increases in thyroiditis and gastritis and colitis and autoimmune diseases. So these, all of these are kind of add up to this soup of really bad uh, panoply of problems as it were. So we, we have a shot for viruses that are extinct. These shots are expired. And, and, and the, problem, the problem is people think they're doing something good because they're being compliant to what we traditionally think of as a vaccine. The CDC changed the definition of, the vaccine, uh, of a vaccine um, early on, which was pretty sneaky. These, these aren't protein vaccines. These are gene-based products that were slipped through the regulatory processes without going through mutation studies, reproductive toxicity studies, dose dependency studies. We have no long-term trials on, on these technologies. We know that the mRNA, so those, that's the Pfizer and the Moderna shots, uh, that mRNA persists in the human body for who knows how long. Dr. Roltkin's study out of Stanford showed that it persisted at least 60 days, at which point they went to publication. And in a set percentage of patients, those patients not only had the synthetic mRNA, they still were making spike protein as well. So, you know, those who got the J&J and AstraZeneca, that's, that's a complementary DNA, not an mRNA. And so that produced a lot of spike at first, and there was clotting and myocarditis associated with those two shots, but persistence of spike production uh, and persistence of the gene sequence is not possible based on that modality. So those who got those, I want to put your mind at ease as, as well. However, um, people will say, well, what about, what about, you know, the Novavax shot? You know, it's, it's a protein vaccine. Yes, you know, made synthetically by moth cells. And, you, and in, in those shots, you end up getting a fair amount of bug protein. But in addition to that, it's still that, that legacy variant, the Wuhan variant. We know that Novavax has a marked increase of heart inflammation, and you're also still forming wrong antibodies to an extinct virus. So overall, the shots were a bad idea from day one. Anybody still pushing the shots or praising the shots has no idea scientifically what they're doing. If your doctor says still get a shot, find a new doctor. There's absolutely no science behind this anymore. He, even Fauci himself, like said, he recanted, stepped back and said, oh, yeah, bad idea. Oops. And you don't hear about that on the front pages of anything. So here we are in, in you know, the late phases of the pandemic, supposedly. But here's my, here's my biggest concern. 
obviously we see an increase in sudden death and it's Ed Dowd has done wonderful work on this, as did Josh Sterling, uh, both of whom I presented with in Senator Johnson's hearing back in January. And statistically, the amount of excess death in the 18 to 64 working age cohort is astounding. And so are are people out of the woods? I know I'm going to get that question. The honest answer is I don't know. I was on a call today, a Zoom out of Germany. My colleague, Dr. Burkhart, and his wonderful team of pathologists, um, they've been seeing deposition of spike protein in tissues one year later still after the shots and some of the autopsies they've done. And so what I'm going to say to anyone and everybody who's going to ask the questions is what do I do? And I'm going to say, optimize your health. What are you doing to optimize your health? What's your vitamin D level? Um, are you sleeping adequately? Are you exercising? Are you, uh, are you losing weight? Are you eating sugar, which is inflammatory? The number one risk factor for bad outcomes with COVID as well as, you know, what we see in, patients with chronic conditions is uh, elevated blood sugars are, are your biggest enemies. And, and, and if you're a type two diabetic, you can control that through diet alone. So make sure you're, you're optimizing your health. You're not putting poison into your body. I like what um, colleague says, there's no such thing as junk food, just junk and food. So you need to choose what you're going to do with your body and you need to make sure if you got one shot, don't get two. If you got two, don't get three. If you got three, certainly don't get a fourth. If you've never received one of these, don't ever get one. And then the other point I want to emphasize is this platform needs to be fought. It needs to be avoided. Any shot going forward with a lipid nanoparticle and a gene sequence is dangerous to the human body, always will be. Lipid nanoparticles carry these gene sequences any and everywhere in the body. We know they concentrate in certain organs, the bone marrow, the liver, uh, the neural tissues, and unfortunately in the gonadal tissues, in the testes and the ovaries. And astoundingly, some of the pictures Dr. Burkhardt has recently shown show in some autopsy cases, uh, spike protein densely accumulated uh, blocking production of sperm. Uh, We know that this was uh, proven in a series out of Israel where sperm counts were markedly decreased for six months as well as sperm motility. So we know that it has drastic fertility effects. So it's not just COVID uh, if they say, well, and thankfully the the first uh, mRNA lipid nanoparticle flu vaccine trials have failed, but they're pushing this forward for children with RSV. And I will remind the world that human cells are meant to make human proteins. Human cells are absolutely not meant to make foreign proteins. And so this platform is a horrifically bad idea. It's horrifically dangerous to the existence of humanity. And Moderna, you know, spent $180 million on a new manufacturing plant in Canada. And these these companies think they have carte blanche to move forward, producing these dangerous technologies for any and every pathogen. And and this is because it's quick and easy for them to ramp it up. It's not because it's a good idea. It's convenience for the manufacturers and the companies, but it's an absolute risk to human health, human wellness, the immune system of humanity uh, going forward forever. 
So it's not just the COVID shots and, and the COVID moment you know, kind of fading. I, I still have my concerns going forward with new variants and the narrowing of the immune response of humanity. But we must stop. We must resist this platform. We must get the regulators to be responsible. So that's my uh, 99 cents worth, Laura. So <laughs> yeah, I didn't scare everybody, but I'm just being scientifically honest. So at this point, you can start querying me. <laughs> You were on a roll and I didn't want to stop you because it's such important information. Um, you know, so we actually got a request, a question before we even started. It was sent in earlier today, and I think it's a really fa a fascinating question. I've invited Dr. Kat Lindley and, of course, uh, Dr. Kirk Moore is on. And, and the way that I run these, uh, Dr. Cole, is very conversational in format. There, there's no formalities here. I'd like to just have open dialogue um, with the folks that are on this panel um, so we can, we can share with the listeners, but you know, someone, someone posed a really interesting question. One that I've thought about for quite some time and tried to practice in my own life, which is how do we, how, as patients, how do we advocate for ourselves? And I know that's a really tricky, probably difficult question for, for you guys to answer, but I'd love for you to try and tackle it. I, I I'll share, um, a couple of personal stories that I have. Um, that I found to be incredibly shocking. And I think that the medical system right now is, uh, it's broken. I think that we have lost trust in the, in particular in the American population, I'm sure in the global community and the respective various other uh, countries, it's also broken. But I'll speak from a standpoint of what's happening here in the United States. And, you know, I've had, uh, I, I've talked about this before on podcasts and openly, uh, and, and Ryan, you and I might've even spoken about this, uh, last time we saw each other, but I have, um, two different types of heart conditions. I've had a series of, of, of cardiac, um, surgeries. I've had cardi, I've been on cardiac medications. And so as, as a result, um, you know, I have had to be extremely cautious with masking as an example. And so when I went to the, to the doctor, I was in a cardiac arrhythmia, went to the emergency room and before they would treat me, they said, you need to put your mask on. And I said, hold on, let me get this straight. My heart rate is in excess of 200 beats per minute. My heart's not perfusing properly. I'm not getting the right oxygen exchange. I, I'm struggling to breathe and you want me to put a mask on before you will treat me when I have, it's clear that this is not about, um, what I'm experiencing is not about a communicable pathogen. This is an acute emergency situation. And in order to treat me, you, you want me to put a mask on that's going to put me in an even more dire situation. That's one of probably five different stories that I have, um, I'll share lastly before I, I want, I would love to get a response from the doctors. When this early on, when this was happening, I openly admit that for the first couple of weeks, I was somewhat concerned and said, well, maybe we do have to be very cautious. Um, maybe we have to wear the masks. And then when a vaccine becomes available, maybe, maybe we need to, to consider this. It became pretty apparent early on though, that, that this was not um, what, the, the media was presenting it to be. This is not what the CDC was presenting it to be. There were so many red flags and inconsistencies. And uh, so I went to my, my endocrinologist and, and said, tell me what your thoughts are on the uh, COVID-19 vaccine. And I agree. I say that very cautiously because I don't believe that this is a vaccine. Um, this does not 
stop the acquisition or transmission of this virus. So that being said, um, I said to my endocrinologist, tell me what your thoughts are on this particular vaccine. How, how do you ensure the safety and efficacy of this, considering that it's so new to being deployed in the human population? And his answer to me was, well, I just, I just really like it. I, I like the vac- I'm, I'm pro-vaccine. I just, I just think vaccines are good. And I said, that's great, but, but let's, let's get more granular. How do you, as a medical professional, distill through the information? Where are you getting your information? How are you confirming, in particular, the safety of this particular vaccine? He never could answer that question. So um, I'll, I'll end there. Uh, but I know, uh, Dr., Dr. Moore, you have to jump off in about 15 minutes. Um, do you want to weigh in on this? And then let's just open it up and have a conversation with, with all the speakers. Well, hi, Laura. Um, uh, hi, Ryan. I hope you guys can hear me. I'm, I'm driving. Um, yeah. Loud and clear, so, Kurt. Go ahead. I, I can tell you that, um, you know, this is a question that I'm sure, you know, Ryan, you get a lot, I get a lot. Um, and the question of advocating, um, it, it really comes down to people just have to educate themselves, uh, both physicians as well as patients. And everybody just need to look out for themselves. I, I'll never forget a quote that I got from um, one of my attendings when I was in medical school was like, you know, nobody looks out for you like you. Um, and that applies here. Um, and you just have to, you know, people just have to educate themselves. And to go back, I'm just going to take a little step back here just for a minute, Laura, because um, this was another quote that um, I've heard a number of times before. But uh, Ed Dowd mentioned it in a recent interview with Tucker Carlson. Um, and you can never argue with somebody. You can never present facts to somebody whose um, who's, uh, positions are based on emotion. And you, you'll just you'll go blue in the face and you'll just beat your head against the wall. And just like you were saying, your doctor says, I believe, I believe. When, when, when that conversation starts with, I believe, I believe, um, it's going to be next to impossible to try to convince somebody um, of any of those, you know, of, of doing anything different than what they've already convinced themselves that they're going to do. Couldn't agree more. I know we talked about that yesterday. And, you, and you've and you been one of the doctors, much like, um, you know, the doctors that are on this panel, Dr. Kat Lindley and, and Dr. Ryan Cole, and of course yourself, and others, right, that have been uh, advocating for patients and doing what you you've all been trained to do, or at least it used to be like this in medical school to, um, to, to act in accordance with the Hippocratic oath and with ethical standards. And you've been persecuted for it. Yeah. So briefly my story, um, I, you know, I think, uh, Kat, we've been on some, um, forums before and some spaces. I think you've probably heard my story and I apologize if it's a repeat for a lot of people, but, um, yeah, you know, so my story starts in 2020, March. Um, I was one of those guys that believed that this was a virus that we needed to be worried about. I shut my office down. Um, I'm a single dad raising two teenage kids. Um, and I closed my office uh, March 17th. Um, by March 26th, when when the government shut us down, I had already changed my mind. I was a 180-degree uh, difference. I mean, I had nothing but seven, eight, nine days, whatever, just to sit and read the literature and study and watch and and read articles and 
uh, listen to people like, you know, Dr. Cole and Dr. Zev Zelenko, may rest in peace, and, um, and realize that this thing was just, you know, just much ado about nothing. Um, and, you know, Dr. Cole is much smarter than I am. I'm just a skin shifter. Um, and I just, you know, but, but I base my, you know, opinions on science and I base it on what I'm reading and I base it on articles. I don't base it on what people's opinions are without having some sort of foundation and something behind it to read and something behind it to understand. Um, in addition to that, I found myself, you know, listening to people that were career bureaucrats that had never taken care of any patients. And I realized that, you know, I have never been to a CDC website or a government website to tell me how to manage my patients and how to take care of them. Um, and so when they, you know, when we start seeing early treatment, we start seeing ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, um, and we start seeing just the, the narrative and how it shifts. I prescribed, you know, hydroxychloroquine for hundreds of patients on my humanitarian trips that I'd been to in Africa. And I knew that, you know, what the drug did and what the side effects were and what the problems with it were. And other than a few people that had got an upset stomach um, at 200 milligrams a day, we never had any issues. And it's a medication that's ubiquitously used all through the, you know, the continent of Africa. And, um, out of the hundreds of patients that I prescribed it for, not one person had any issues with it. And so now all of a sudden it's killing people and people are kind of lined up outside emergency rooms because of all of the quote unquote, you know, hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin overdoses and people in there because of, you know, uh, increased PR intervals on their EKGs and all of that BS. And it was just kind of like, um, that was to me that, you know, just kind of like, okay, something, you know, much more evil is going on. So um, I started again, we were, I was still wasn't back to work and I prescribed hydroxychloroquine for anybody and everybody that I knew, um, family, friends, staff, um, you know, keep it in case you get sick, you know, kind of thing. And, um, and one thing led to another and people started realizing that I was treating people. And so I now all of a, all of a sudden became kind of one of the go to people for all of my plastic surgery patients. Um, and all of their friends and all of their family and all my neighbors and everything. And I probably took care of 800 to 1,000 people um, during this, you know, COVID crisis in 2020. Um, I, one of my nurses' husband was, you know, they tried to admit him to the hospital. And I said, Melanie, don't let him go. And he brought him home. And he was the first patient that I treated with the FLCCC steroid protocol. And I saved his life. Um, I have no doubts about it, that if he'd have gone into the hospital with a oxygen saturation of 84% um, and six liters of oxygen, he would have been ventilated within 24 hours and hit with remdesivir and he would have died. Um, and did the same for a number of other people. And, um, and that, you know, that was just kind of the start of it. And then you start hearing, just like Dr. Cole was talking about, um, vaccines and, you know, and we got to wait for a vaccine. There's no early treatment. And, you know, since when do we in medicine not treat people early? You know, since when do we, I mean, it's kind of like seeing a patient with um, a little spicule on her mammogram and telling them, well, hey, wait till it erodes through your skin and you can see it and it's causing you problems and then let's, let's cut it out at that point. Uh, you know, that's just never been a philosophy in medicine that we've ever been taught or told or, or you know, ever practiced. I mean, it was just, it was just asinine. Um, so anyway, all that went through and then, you know, vaccines start coming out. Um, and you know, I was, you know, just didn't believe in it. Um, and didn't think, you know, we could, 
<laughs> warp speed, you know, I, I hate to repeat what Ryan was saying, but uh, it just doesn't make any sense. You can't warp speed, a, uh, a, you know, a, a therapeutic uh, gene-based therapy that had failed all of its animal tests um, prior to being, you know, human beings and then tested on billions of humans and whole thing going. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's kind of where I'm at. Um, and the mm-hmm. end of the story is, is that I'm, without speaking about my case, I've been indicted for um, writing uh, fake COVID cards and giving saline injections instead of COVID vaccines to 1,937 patients. Um, and I have three federal indictments uh, between myself and my two employees and one of my neighbors. Um, and so I'm in the middle of, uh, in the middle of fighting, fighting all that when I know, and we all know that this is, you know, this is a clot shot and this is a deadly intervention. Um, it's not a vaccine and it's killing people and it's maiming people. And Joel and told me the other day, he said, Kirk, you need to be a lot more aggressive on this. Um, you need to tell people that, you know, you are a being indicted and you are being accused and and they're trying to railroad you for not murdering and maiming people. Think about that. Not not murmur, murdering and maiming children, too, Correct. because we we know that there's been a huge um, effort directed at the pediatric population in this country. So I would ask, like, what what advice do you guys have for for people um and how do they advocate for themselves, especially when, you know, uh, Dr. Moore, you and I spoke about this yesterday and that how, how do you advocate for yourself when they're starting to normalize things that would be red flag indicators? You know, I just saw something that said, um, let me find it here. It said that zero calorie sweeteners, they're now saying are linked to heart attacks and strokes. I mean, uh, Dr. Moore, you and I spoke yesterday about the fact that in California, we have school administrators that are being trained to recognize cardiac events in the pediatric population. These are things that, that are that are pretty clear red flag indicators, but they're being normalized. So what advice do you guys have for, for people when they visit their doctors? How do they advocate for themselves effectively um, given what we've seen over the last two to three years? And doctors being persecuted as well. I, I'll comment real quick, but then I want to hear Kat. Um, I have two comments. Number one, I love uh, Dr. Moore's comment um, about reading. And, and many have heard me say the Mark Twain quote time and time again, the man who does not read has no advantage over the man who cannot read. Most of your doctors do not read the literature. Just like Dr. Moore, he and I just gleaned the literature that first year. And I know Kat did and Dr. Urso and Malone and McCullough and all our other colleagues and friends, you know, if they're not reading, they're not they're not filling their brain. And then the other challenge that you bring up, Laura, is uh, another quote from my childhood. The man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. And and this is that emotionalism that Dr. Moore spoke of. It, it's an emotional belief argument. It's, it's a genuflection to some COVID religiosity or some belief that there can't ever be anything wrong within the system. So in terms of advocating for yourself, I, I love asking questions. And one of my main questions is, are you sure? How do you know? Are you sure? How do you know? 
Um, where's your data? What information do you have on that? Because a, a lot of your doctors, unfortunately, they go to Dr. Google too, and they'll, they'll read an article in these uh, corrupted, regulated, or, or not regulated, but corrupted journals that have been bought since the 1960s by the pharmaceutical companies. They've been owned by the pharmaceutical companies. A lot of us are just waking up to that fact. So if they say, well, I read it in JAMA or New England Journal or Lancet, well, we know how corrupt they are now. So always question and, and don't be afraid to ask your doctor a question. I mean, obviously polite dialogue, but you do have to be your own best advocate. And, and so question, question. And if their answer isn't viable or their answer now, now you can go to the emotionality. If their answer is dismissive or doesn't feel right, then don't take their advice per se. You know, I, I say the best doctor you'll ever meet is here right now. And I'm not talking about any of us on the panel. I'm talking about everybody listening. You are your own best doctor. You always are and always will be. You know your body better than anyone else. And you need to you need to advocate for yourself. You need to ask those questions. You need to be willing to uh, not accept, you know, willy-nilly what your doctor is saying. So at that, I'll, I'll be quiet. I'd love to hear from Kat because she's a wonderful speaker. Over to you, Kat. Thanks, Ryan. So I agree with everything Ryan has said. You have to be your own advocate. You have to trust yourself. You know what's best for you. Uh, I always tell my patients, um, I can lead you to water, but I can't make you drink because we're supposed to be partners. You know, I, I'm their cheerleader. I'm not the, their commander, you know, and it has to be a partnership. And also, do healthcare is such a weird business. It's the only place where you don't know how much anything costs before you buy it. It's, some, it's a place where, like, someone tells you what to do and people in the past have just done it. But do what you do with other things. You ask your neighbor, who do you like? You know, you're welcome to send us messages. I know Ryan and myself and Dr. Moore would be happy to recommend someone if we know them in your area. Go to flccaapsonline.org, Unity Project, follow these different physicians. But it's also like, what would you do if someone, we are very, we will do everything for someone else, but we don't tend to stick up for ourselves. So if someone was to attack one of our children or something happened, we would be the first ones to go in defense and, uh, and be advocates for them. Do the same for yourself and just trust your gut. Your gut knows what's right or wrong. And it's, it's, it's really, it's as simple as that, but it's also very complex. And I do recognize that. Don't, um, don't accept other people's directives. And if your doctor, the first thing they do is, want to treat certain things with medication. Like Ryan said, ask why. Why can I try something else? Can I try health, you know, health uh, lifestyle changes and different things? There's so many things we can do outside of medicine. And, uh, you know, I always tell people medicine is about common sense. It's about uh, critical thinking and uh, truly just being an um, advocate for yourself. Yeah, you know, it was th that's what I found to be particularly um, challenging, I think, with this particular situation, because historically, I think we all operate under the premise that vaccines are something that is good for, for society. Vac you know, we've, we've been told this 
this um, story, I guess, if you will, for lack of a better way to articulate it, that vaccines are something that's important. It's just something that you do. You know, when I remember, um, I'll, I'll tell you guys a story. When I, when my daughter was born, I was guilted into um, getting the flu shot. I'd never actually had a flu shot. And um, my doctor said to me, you know, your daughter, she's less than six months old. You, she cannot get the flu shot. She's too little. So it's your responsibility as a new mother to take the flu shot. I ended up doing it and I have never been so sick in my life. And um, there, there's this idea that you just, you get a vaccine because it's what you're supposed to do. And I think that is how um, a lot of the people really kind of fell into line. And I'll share another story. Uh, Chalk Hospital here in Orange County, it's, a, it's, it's one of the leading children's hospitals. There was a, there was a doctor that was giving a lecture to uh, other pediatricians. And the topic was, how do you address parents that are somewhat hesitant to get their children vaccinated with the COVID-19 vaccine? And, and some of the techniques that he opened, and, and I should back up and say, we screen recorded this. So I have all of this on um, screen recording. He openly said to these pediatricians, don't tell patients about the, the really scary dangers. You know, tell them that their child will maybe get a bruise on their arm or maybe a little fever. But you probably want to steer clear of the, the real dangers uh, you know, the scary things like the myocarditis. And I, I could not believe what I was hearing. So this is a doctor guiding other doctors to withhold vital information, um, going against informed consent, going against all things that um, are ethical and part of medical standards. Um, I think, go ahead, Ryan. Uh, that's what's so disappointing is the, the brainwashing of, the collective loss of the medical mind. And like Kat says, common sense isn't so common. And I like to say common science isn't so common anymore. And this is a huge problem we have is people accepting as gospel, just something that was dictated to them by an agency and to have this manipulative effect upon a medical profession to say, okay, here's how you coerce a patient into get something that they don't want, that they don't need, that doesn't work anyway. Uh, you know, that's an absurdity. And so there's so much science speaking against these children were never at risk from this virus technically anyway. So this is where, again, I'll go back to Kat's point. You have to be your own best advocate. Um, so I, I think you bring up a, a great point there. A Here, here's a problem with pediatricians as well. They, they are incentivized to give vaccines. They, the good majority of their income gives from giving shots. And not, I mean, they're great pediatricians. I have a brother-in-law that won't speak to me anymore because they spoke out against this experimental gene-based shot. And, but he, nobody's going to bite the hand that feeds them. And sadly, this is the hand that feeds a good percentage of that subspecialty. And so people aren't going to, are, they're not going to bite that hand. So I'll be quiet. Um, Michelle has a question. Yeah. yeah. I, I her. So Michelle, you want to go ahead and fire away? Hi. Yeah. Can you guys hear me? I'm in the, I'm yep. between Topeka and Wichita. So if yeah. that would be anything, I'm in the middle of nowhere. We can hear you loud and clear. <laughs> yeah. I, so I don't have a question as much as I do a comment. So um, I know Ryan and, and, um, 
Dr. Cole and Dr. Lindley have been at conferences with them, been in a lot of speakers, you know, speaker places and spoke on this. I'm a nurse practitioner. I'm here in Kansas, in Missouri, treated COVID during the height of COVID with a with a front, well, most of the time alongside of a frontline doc here. And so I just wanted to mention that as far as my, my story. But I also, um, while I was going back to school at Creighton University to get my doctor of nursing practice, um, about 10, 12 years ago, I I was on staff there. I taught in the in the nursing department in the BSN. I also stayed on for a year after. I would love to go back to academic nursing, but um, I just don't know that that will ever happen. But so I have a, a a really keen sense of of what nurses traditionally and through history have been. They've been advocates. They've been fierce advocates. And what has happened over the last several years? And I've told this to my husband. I want to say probably about five ten years ago. I looked at him and I said we're in trouble. I said, because when something comes around that's going to involve vaccines, everything's going to go, you know, it's just going to go south because it's a brainwashing point that, that you, that I've listened to conversations with nurses and medical providers over the years, and they've been so tied to vaccines, like with a cult-like mentality. So while I was teaching nursing and taking nursing students up to the hospitals to train them in the trauma ICUs and other, other floors, um, many of these, over the last 20 years, many of these hospitals have had large posters up about patient rights and responsibilities. Now, in the same time in the last 20 years that we have been, you know, pushing to, it, you know, it, well, 20 plus years ago it was pain is what the patient says it is, but putting the patient in the driver's seat because make no mistake, we did that for quite some time. In fact, much of those, um, you know, those, I would, I would take my students in for debrief and I would say, look at this poster on the wall. It says what your patients should, should expect of you. And I said, if you go in there and you're demeaning to them or condescending to them, this piece of paper means nothing on this wall. Okay. And so we've always been fierce advocates. We've been the last line of defense. The doctor's written the order, but we've been seeing then the changes real time that the patient is making in order to take those changes back. I'm talking specifically about hospital medicine right now, but um, taking even home health, we're taking those those messages back to the doctor so that they can make, um, of course, I work in a nurse practitioner role now, but you know, I, I consider myself a bedside nurse, honestly, for much of my career. And so the problem is, is that we've gone from, nursing has gone from being very fierce advocates, having the pulse on what the patient wants. Remember, evidence-based practice, at least the way it's, I was taught it is, it's, it's a, you know, part of it is the best research out there. Part of it is the clinician's expertise and their experience. And the other big part of it is the patient's wants and needs and their cultural beliefs. But it just seems like much of that has been thrown out the window in order for the almighty, um, like Dr. Cole said, the agency's wishes. And I think we're in a very scary place. I think, number one, you should not be at a doc. I think it's like a good marriage. Why would I date someone and we fight the whole time while we're dating? And I'm not going to marry that person. I don't want to do that with a doctor. If I don't have mostly like-minded views, I'm going to switch doctors. Um, not many of you know him. He's local. Uh, Dr. Earl, uh, he might have met some of you guys at some of the FLCCC conferences, but he came, he came awake during the middle of this. He's an amazing man. He's my doctor now. He's a DPC. He's at retirement age. He went, um, he, re he left a big, you know, the same, actually the same company I was let go from for treating COVID. He left, started his own DPC, 
And it's amazing. Dr. Lindley, the way she talked about never knowing the price of things, this man has the most, um, he has the most transparent website and pricing on drugs and procedures I've ever seen. I tell him that his wife helps him run the office. Lovely people. Find a doctor like that. Go to FLCCC. Go to aapsonline.org. Let's switch over. Let's, let's pay out of pocket. And it's going to end up being cheaper in the long run anyway. So when you go into the hospital, never go to the emergency room alone, ever. I've told people, my family members this for years. Never allow yourself to stay overnight in the hospital alone. Always politely question what is going on always question the narrative. So those are just a few of my tips, um, 25 plus years in nursing and, and seven in, as an NP right now. You guys, I'm all your biggest, uh, your biggest fans. So thanks for letting me uh, uh, weigh in here. Oh, thanks. Laura, I just want to mention one thing about vac vaccines. And Ryan will tell you this because we discuss this in our meetings that we have every week. Uh, Vaccines is something that in medical school is definitely um, something that we learn about, something that as a physician culture, many believe there is uh, benefits to it. But I very actually urge everyone to, to read Thurls all the way down. It will open your eyes to the whole industry and in the industry is corrupted. And I think... Uh, like I said, you have to be your own advocate, but also be your child's advocate because there are a lot of questions. And, and I'm not, you know, I have five kids myself. Uh, they've all been vaccinated. They all have to go through a uh, different schedule and stuff like that. Even someone like myself, who's always believed in it, has lots of lots of questions. And I think this is a conversation that all of us really truly have to sit down, look at each individual vaccine and say, is there a benefit to this or not? Because even just hepatitis B, when the child is born, if there is no risk factor, why do we give it at birth? Why do we give it so close and so many times? Is there really a need? I think, you know, this is a conversation for another time, but it needs to be had. Yeah, Dr. Lindley, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I was just recently at a dinner with someone and they asked me the question about, you know, well, do you believe that there's ever um, a reason or for, for vaccines? And, you know, I said, listen, much like you, I, I've been, I've been vaccinated for everything with the exception of rabies and COVID. <laughs> um, and knowing what I now know about the vaccine industry, um, I would have to say that I have extreme hesitancy with any vaccine, given the fact that it is a system that is designed um, with tremendous conflicts of interest, lack of transparency, and incentivized to rush products to market without safety um, understanding and uh, you know efficacy is I, I'm I'm I said I would say to a lesser degree I'm concerned about the efficacy and I'm certainly very concerned about the safety data and when we have a system that is just 100% at this point designed for all of those things right conflict of interest lack of transparency and incentive and being incentivized to rush to market without safety standards we've got a big problem. Um, so I couldn't agree with you more. And, I, and, and absolutely, we should probably have a separate um, Twitter Spaces event where we invite you guys all back and really talk through 
the the vaccine industry as a whole and what the dangers are as it relates to that. And I don't think the that the general public has any idea. I mean, I'll openly admit that I had no idea. And, and I continue to learn um, about the true dangers of, of the vaccine industry and, and have a tremendous amount of regret um, vaccinating my, my child with some of the, some of the vaccines that I've already, you know, vaccinated her with. So obviously my eyes are wide open now and I'm much more cautious, but that goes back to the original question of how do you advocate when um, we've had this, this idea that you're being a good parent or you're being a good citizen, um, you know, by, by going along and getting the vaccines. So, um, I see a lot of hands. Yeah, I, pressed, I pressed the hundred percent button because there wasn't a thousand percent button. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think Mike is next. So let's, let's hear Mike's question. Uh, hi guys. It's, it's not as much of a question as a comment. I'm an emergency physician for the last 30 years. Uh, I, uh, have been fortunate to practice the way that I, I had to do it, you know, go around the, uh, powers that be in a lot of ways. I want to thank you guys for all of what you've done, and I've been able to follow good resources uh, in treating patients correctly. Uh, I woke up to the pharmaceutical industry about 15 years ago and somehow found Children's Health Defense and fortunate not to have vaccinated my kids. And at that time, I thought these were those were small battles uh, and realized that the science was not... Uh, robust in terms of vaccines. And at the time, my I, disease that was a healthy child was minuscule and probably the risk that the vaccine was going to harm my healthy child was minuscule, but I would rather commit an error of omission than one of commission. Um, COVID has definitely woken me up to the, you know, to, to your point, Ryan, the uh, the dissemination of information in medicine has gotten to be so top down. You know, in our defense as physicians over the last 30 years, we had all these reliable and trusted sources or uh, um, online databases that gave us guidance. Uh, and then, you know, we sort of got too busy. And, and as a whole, we've lost our ability to do cri critical thinking because it was easier to just look up the protocol. Well, then those protocols have been weaponized against us. Um, and it, we, it's sort of been a boiling the frog situation. You know, we, I just didn't see it coming in the way that they did it. And then uh, COVID was just almost like a nuclear option in the battle uh, for our health and our finances. And I, I, as much as I saw that, for instance, direct-to-consumer advertising was bad because it made patients walk into physicians' offices wanting a drug that they probably didn't need, I now realize that that's a very small part of the problem and the direct-to-consumer advertising is really just control. Over. Well said, Mike. And and I think that's a great point. There's two nations on earth that can do direct-to-consumer advertising and have ads on TV, and that's the U.S. and New Zealand. So, you know, reversing the 1986 Act would be wonderful. Reversing the laws allowing pharmaceutical industry to advertise would be wonderful. So I think you bring up some great points, and thanks for being on the front line and fighting with us. Um, 
you know, the truth, the truth is what needs to prevail. So thank, thanks for a good fight and congrats on avoiding the shots for your kids. Um, I wish I'd done the same. All my kids had their childhood vaccines. I have one vaccine in daughters. So uh, I, I super appreciate that. Honestly, I think one of the silver linings of COVID is now more people are looking into all the vaccines and medical freedom is a viable question for any uh, uh, politician. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that is the the unintended consequence of what um, the pharmaceutical companies have have, you know, pulled the curtain back on. They they I think that there was this idea that people were just going to fall in line and there would be that we would do it unquestioningly because again, there's this thought that, that you have to vaccinate yourself and your children. And, um, the unintended consequence has been that I think you're going to start seeing more and more people push back on the overall vaccine. Um, I'm going to call it cartel. <laughs> so, um, well, you're, you're right, Lori. Interestingly, if you look at the dengue vax disaster in the Philippines, their vaccine uptake generally was around 80 plus percent. And after the Dengavaxia uh, disaster, and again, this was an antibody dependent enhancement, uh, one dengue strain, and then the next season, more kids died, more hospitalized. And that took their vaccine uptake from all vaccines from the 80s down to the 30 percent. So that's an interesting history. But I think it's wonderful that people, and again, I, I advocate that same book that uh, Dr. Lindley mentioned, Turtles All the Way Down. Once you see that most of these childhood diseases were gone before the shots ever rolled out and our hygiene major measures in society had gotten rid of most of these diseases, uh, you know, to put your kids in harm's way when there's no risk for these these diseases, I, I, I'm, I'm grateful that people are waking up. Um, shall we go on to some more questions, Laura? Uh, absolutely. Let's do it. All right. I think Dr. Crisana was next. Hey guys, uh, good evening. Actually, it's uh, eight oh eight oh five here in, on the East Coast. And um, for those of you that have gone to my profile, those of you that don't know me, I know most of you anyway. Um, my particular advocacy is on the DoD side, and this is a specific challenge. And I just I, I, I try to highlight it every chance I get, which is basically the question is how do you advocate for um, vaccine safety, if you will, within a Department of Defense construct? And you've got to also consider the fact that much of Congress has run appropriations through the Department of Defense, specifically for, for clinical trials, um, where they use service members in part um, to uh, conduct studies, for example, on breast cancer research. And, 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 you know, the question becomes, why are we running this on service members when this is a benefit to the broader society? Why aren't we doing this at the Cleveland Clinic or other things? So there's a lot going on. Specifically, though, there's a lot going on within the area of how information has been disseminated on the vaccine safety and i did an article and i've tweeted about it on one of the one of the examples was a town hall so we had a lot of the army representatives from medcom and they basically brought some of their soldiers to the town hall they allowed them to ask questions a question one of the questions was specifically on fertility and the Department of Defense came back specifically and said it was misinformation that there was no data and there was nothing to support anybody's concerns about the impact on fertility. And that was just one example of what goes on within the Department of Defense. And it continued to get worse as I began to navigate through the process. And I ultimately got out after 32 years in the intelligence community. My specialty is warfare. Um, I basically had an inside 
front row seat onto some of these specific challenges. Um, you know, as an example, you know, they had, you know, the, the, the construct of, you know, you can't make a medical decision, you can't apply for a religious accommodation. And I would say to all Americans, can you imagine being restricted by one army chaplain or one Department of Defense chaplain adjudicating your religious belief system? So these are layers upon layers upon layers of how do you even get to the discussion of trying to either uphold your right to have a, an a objection, an informed consent, um, and then just navigate the, I don't want to call it the swamp because it's an overused term, but the navigating the challenges to finally get to discussions about safety, risk, the mandates, the number of vaccines that a service member gets, myself included, after being, I'm also a veteran myself, Navy, and been to Iraq five times, I've been to Afghanistan, blah, 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 and the vaccines are insane. So we've got all of it in the above. So the challenges that I want to try to highlight are ultimately our Department of Defense is going to end up the service members are going to become veterans. Then what happens when they show up at the VA? How do we continue to advocate? How do we continue to represent and explain to the VA we've got service members that have been harmed? We have to under, we have to elucidate and we have to highlight all the different ways. Dr. Cole's been doing it. All of you guys have been doing it. How do you elucidate and, 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 and illuminate, if you will, the range and numbers and ways that the vaccines are actually injuring people. This is something that we need to make sure get this is information that needs to go to the Veterans Administrations as well, because they're the ones who adjudicate a disability rating for our service members. So that's kind of sort of where my advocacy lands. But again, it goes to, you know, how do you ultimately get to, you know, how do we navigate this space? So there's everybody's everybody's got this piece over here, and then the Department of Defense is like it's its own unique animal. So I just want to get that get right. the voice out there, get the get that you know argument out there. And thanks, yeah, guys. I Thank you. Because I, I went to the Air Force Academy back in the '80s, and I remember lining up to get shots, and I have no idea what Uncle Sam put in my arm back in the day. I wish I had my records and could find that out. And I think this is a great point. You know, when you sign that dotted line, you are now general issue GI. So you are now the government's property. And unfortunately, you, you know, secondarily become Uncle Sam's guinea pig. And so, you know, th this is very questionable morals, ethics and humanity. And we know from, you know, what you mentioned, so much of what they're doing is very, I think, spurious. And, and we do need to question. And I think those who fund um, this juggernaut, you know, largest military on earth, we need to we need to hold our representatives accountable for not harming our own soldiers so that's that's my two sorry i was just gonna I, double no, down on that and just say you know ultimately our entire department of defense our armed forces 99 percent, 98 percent vaccinated we really 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 need to keep an eye on this one and oh by the way when they all become veterans we need to make sure that they're taken care of um, and the, that the that the VA is standing there going, yep, we understand you've got a vaccine injury and say it out loud. Well, and I, I mean, I think, look, I think there's a lot in general that the VA could be doing better, that we could be doing better to support our former uh, military personnel and making sure that we get them the care that they need in a lot of aspects. But specifically as it relates to this particular um, vaccine, I think it's a really complex um, point that you bring up because it, I think it requires them at some point, I say them being the military, the government, the, you know, the, the, the CDC, the, the pharmaceutical industry, all on some level acknowledging um, the dangers that, that these 
that everyone was was exposed to as a result of experiencing this vaccine. And, um, it, you know, it, I think that this bleeds over even into the general population as well. So um, keep advocating. I think that you bring up a really, really good point. And unfortunately, you know, the, for, for those that have not been in the military, the military population, you, you don't, to your point, Dr. Cole, you don't have a choice. The government owns you. And so um, I, I have a son that's in the military and um, that's been an interesting challenge for us as a family because we know that there's known dangers, uh, in particular in in the male population. And, you know, uh, Dr. Cole, I don't know, or, or any of the other doctors, I don't know if you guys even want to <laughs> open that up, go, go down that path. But I know that um, in particular for, for um, the young male population, they have a higher risk of some of these cardiac events. And you're talking about a population or a demographic of, of, of individuals that are at peak or optimal health, right? They're, they're in the military. It's a younger demographic. And we're seeing horrific vaccine injuries. Um, I know um, you, were, you were just talking about the, the vax, excuse me, the, the fertility and people will say, I oftentimes hear people say, well, you know, I know that there's reports that women have had interruptions to their menstrual cycle, but that doesn't mean necessarily that it's a fertility issue. Well, in and of itself, when you interrupt a woman's menstrual cycle, isn't that the very definition of, of fertility issues? Um, so, I mean, we could go on and on and on about this particular topic. I know uh, I have about 20 minutes left um, in terms of my timing, and I want to make sure we get to all of the comments. So, Dr. Cole, do you, um, was there someone? It looks like, <laughs> yeah, it looks like Chris Chambers is next in line here. So right. go for it, Chris. Okay. Can you hear me all right? Sure yes, can. Yes, indeed. All right. I, I wanted to, uh, to kind of touch on something that I haven't heard talked about in the spaces. I do have a question at the end. Um, with, with the efficacy testing, uh, the vaccine trials, as a as somebody with a bunch of experience testing, for example, the chips in your cell phone, the chips in your cell phone get tested 100%. There's, there's no doubt about it. I mean, whatever stress, like if it's heat, if it's cold, if it's high voltage, it gets directly applied to the chip. And there's no doubt that whether the chip passes that test or not. When it comes to any type of vaccine testing, it's nowhere near definitive because they don't inject people with vaccine and inject the other half with saline and then have infected people cough right in their faces. I mean, if you really, now granted this would be unethical, but if you really wanted to truly test a vaccine, that's what you would have done. And then at the same time, you would have to know for sure that your population was representative in terms of their susceptibility to that virus. Because we know with corona, at least half the people that got exposed to it never showed any symptoms at all. Systems, and I don't know the pre-vaccine uh, fatality rate or, or survival rate, if you will, that he said the fatality rate was only 0.15%. So that means 99.85% of the people were surviving with no vaccine. And this was overall, this was everybody. This was the old people. This was the, the morbidly obese people, et cetera. So 
how did they really test the efficacy on something with with just, you know, say 20 some thousand people getting this vaccine? You know, I maintain that there's no way they could have possibly tested the efficacy. And well, kind of now we, we've gotten gotten to the point where it looks like, yeah, they, they really weren't able to test it because it's not nearly as effective as what they said. Well, Chris, I don't uh, think I think that's the point. I don't think that they did test the efficacy on this. And in fact, if you yeah. listen to some of the testimony um, of, of the Pfizer executives, that in fact was not yeah. the intent um, was to stop the spread, the acquisition or spread of this virus. Yeah. And and I, I really want Ryan or Dr. Cole to weigh in on this, obviously with his background as a pathologist. But you know, this goes back to my point before, which is. We, what we now know about the vaccine industry, I don't think that this, uh, the way that, that we approach the COVID-19 vaccine testing safety and, safety, and safety and efficacy, I don't think that that is unique to this particular vaccine. I think that unfortunately, this seems to be um, how the vaccine industry has operated for quite some time. And it just so happens that... Um, we're now becoming aware of this. Well, that's a great point. I mean, Kat brought up earlier, Dr. Lindley, the point that, you know, hep B, why do you give hep B to a little kiddo when they're no risk for hep B unless they're, you know, a drug user or, uh, you know, et cetera? They're not. And and, and the problem is hep B, how, how long was it tasted, uh, tested for uh, safety? Four days. Four days. That was the safety follow-up. So... You know, it, it's ridiculous that, you know, these things aren't tested for safety. And you go back to the original Pfizer trial, there are more people that died in the shot cohort than died in the placebo cohort from all causes. So it, it is so important to question everything. And I think this is, you know, the wake up call, the clarion call to all of us. Hey, wake up, ask questions. Don't be afraid to question. Don't be afraid to doubt. Uh, don't be afraid of peer pressure. Because the, the industry we know is absolutely corrupted. Any, anything that has liability protection, you absolutely have to question. You know, why can three kids die from a crib breaking and all of a sudden it's off the market? And yet we have these things that kill countless children, maim and harm countless children. And, and we allow them to persist without questioning. And this is where the 1986 Act has to be reviewed and overturned or in, immensely modified. So this is so important, such a great question. Yeah, question everything because obviously they're hiding the data. Uh, there hasn't been transparency in data on these injections. And, you know, we're intelligent scientists. Give us the raw data. If, if, you, if you don't give us the raw data, it means you're hiding something. And, and, wow. and, and you know, the other important point, like Bobby Kennedy says, um, you know, statistics are, are like a POW, torture them enough and you can get them to say anything. And that's what we see these agencies doing. And they're torturing the data in order to get their agenda pushed forward. So I, I think you bring up a great point. I apologize, cut out for a minute there. I, I'm dependent on Elon out on my rural farm here for my satellite. <laughs> and I appreciate that he's allowing us to speak freely. So yeah, thanks. Lucky you, Ryan. Lucky you, Ryan, <laughs> on, out in free country over there. Um, I, I also wanted to add, beyond just asking questions, we have to give doctors the ability to actually practice medicine um, and have the government and the pharmaceutical companies stop intervening 
in the the doctor patient relationship. I know Sharon, I, I think you requested, um, and I think she was actually in line with a question and I, I added you as a speaker, if you can hear me and you can jump on, um, I, I'll, I would love to give you the opportunity to ask your question. Um, we'll give her a second here. If not, Sharon, feel free once you, once you jump back on, if you, if you do, I added you as a speaker, feel free to jump in and ask your question. Um, I just time check. I have about 12 minutes left for, for me before I have to jump off. Sounds good. Yeah. I'm going to have to jump pretty close too. I know Dr. Lindley and I have an, another meeting mm -hmm. coming up later. I'm while Sharon's coming up. Why don't we go to Dr. Seuss there? Dr. Seuss has a question. Good evening, Dr. Cole. I actually have a specific question to ask you on about this, uh, you know, beyond the platform has been used for this, uh, stupid spike protein and we know the protein itself is toxic um it is there are so many wrongs with this whole design how, how the heck are you going to use a pass uh antigen that's a toxic molecules right it's just like ridiculous but beyond that point they try to push this platform to use for other things to overexpress uh, to for whatever purpose they try to do and my question for you is like let's just like forgot about this specific toxicity of that protein they try to make. Let's just assume this protein is a beneficial protein. For example, insulin. For type 1 diabetes patients, you don't have insulin. If they give a platform to deliver insulin message into the body, and that one end up actually not in your pancreas and get into your liver, right now your liver cells start to make insulin. In that case, what could happen? You know, I ask this question to many people. I mean, you know, you're a pathologist. Um, I would try to do some specific experiment like a cell lines to overexpress certain non-function protein and to see what cells can respond. And also try to do that with animals and then do the pathology analysis for that. You know, I do a lot of uh, pathology slides in my lab, but mainly for the drug toxicity. So I know what specific thing I'm looking for with either HE staining or um, antibody staining. But like in your opinion, if I'm doing a specific non-function protein, or like this good function protein insulin expression with the wrong organ, if I do a pathology analysis, what I should look at, you know, that, that's the part, you know, uh, bothers me. I, I, I can't figure out what's the thing I need to look at. Thank you. No, that's a great point. And I, I think, you know, just breaking that down, this goes to, you know, can can this technology be useful for certain things? Yes, in a very limited fashion. It, it's not that we we stop all technologies and all research, but we make sure all the research, all the data, all the safety is in before we ever roll it on on humanity and not use the excuse of an emergency that ends up being a non-emergency once you look at the data and statistics and how we fared as a society. But, you know, in terms of inborn errors of metabolism, you know, if there's a gene deletion and you're trying to get a protein expression into every cell in the body, great lipid nanoparticle and that rare inborn error of metabolism may be a great idea. But to your point, you know, if, okay, so you have a diabetic, you're trying to insert a gene to make insulin and it goes to the brain cells, the heart cells, the liver cells, and not just the pancreas, bad idea, right? Because now you've got every cell producing, and, and this, is, this is a great point you bring up. So like with this, we don't know how much spike protein 
each individual body is making, that was never never measured. And so this dose dependency, we not only were make, we making spike protein. I mean, the big problem is if you look at the the FOIA request of the European Med- Medicine Agency, there's a lot of truncated, broken um, RNA within these vials. And, and they lowered the standard to 50%. This is not a 100% pure product from Pfizer. This is a huge problem because now what other proteins are, are the cells making and transcribing? Uh, all sorts of truncated, misfolded proteins. And those can be carcinogenic. We know microRNA can lead to cancer. Uh, we know that they can lead to autoimmune conditions. So, yes, this is absolutely the pharmaceutical type testing that should have been done. That, that's an excellent point you bring up. I'm not saying the technology is, is you know, you throw it out the window, baby, with the bathwater. You use it very carefully in very limited, limited fashions, and, and you prove 10 years of safety before you ever give it to a human. So thanks for that great question. Um, it looks like... Uh, unless got- Yeah, we've got about seven minutes. I have about seven minutes left, Um, Dr. Cole, I know, and Dr. Lindley, excuse me. I think you both have another um, event as well. So, Dr. Cole, I'll let you choose the probably the last question, and then and then we'll wrap it up. If you can make it quick, we got spilling tea and little mo. So, spilling tea. If you want to ask your question, go ahead. Hi. So, my question is about um, whether or not the vaccinated that donates blood is carried over into my IVIG treatments that I receive for an immune deficiency? Uh, I've received this question about a thousand times. The answer is we don't know. Um, the probability since since they use basically a column separation to um, that IVIG product, uh, it's a pooled product from a lot of donors. You know, could there be trace amounts? Theoretically, yes. Um, is it a fraction that weighs different than the spike protein weighs? Yes. So in terms of fractionating off the IVIG, I, I conjecture, again, nobody's done the study yet. I conjecture it's probably safe uh, just based on molecular weights. However, the honest answer is I don't know. Um, and and once I do know, I will publish it. And I, I'm working with my German colleagues as well in pathology. So I, I'm sorry that, you know, I don't have a better answer. But sometimes in medicine, the best answer is I don't know. Right. So thanks. For I appreciate it. Thank you. You bet. Lil Mo, you want to go ahead? Hey, how you doing, guys? Um, I have. I have live situations happening. I know my father just went to the hospital um, and they're talking about that he has liquid around his heart. They, they put a uh, a stint, I guess two stints. Um, one of the biggest problems that I have going on with my family, I'm a, I'm a veteran myself, 15 years, and I, I saw I saw the, this this BS coming down the pipeline. I actually, I was at active duty working uh, hand-in-hand for the state with the National Guard. And uh, I just couldn't couldn't take couldn't take the leadership anymore. I just literally walked away. I walked away from from a from a career. Um, I, ne- I was not gonna get the jab at all. I was not gonna. I I, I saw it. I already saw it. Um, <clears throat> this the life situations that I have though, however, is in regards to speaking to my family um, in the best way possible. They, they everybody just keeps um, uh, telling me that I'm that I'm even after me telling them and showing them. Get on Instagram. Get on uh, Twitter. 
Hear it from other people. Hear it from doctors. Brother, hear it from doctors, man. You don't even have to hear it from me anymore. Hear it from doctors. And, and, and it's like, it's like, it's like they don't want to know the truth. People are, are so scared and I feel for them. And there's nothing that I could do at this very moment than shut the hell up and kind of watch and observe. Um, but I, what, what I really need is everybody that's, that's, that's pretty much on these spaces um, to start spreading the message out further on, further out. There, I know in my hand, I know what I'm doing. I, I know that I can do as much as I can do. Um, and I just want to just keep keep pushing forward the, the whatever you guys are doing, these spaces, conducting these spaces, get more people involved. Tell them to get a Twitter account. If they can't hear from from live professionals, even though I got it, we, we there, there's an issue with professionals at the, at, the, at the moment, but they're coming around. You guys are coming around. And, and I love I love what I'm hearing. Um, people are standing up for, 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 the, for the VA. Listen, I've been sta- I've been trying to fight the VA too at the same time because um, not just that, but let's let's talk about marijuana, marijuana um, uh, type type of uh, remedies. you know federally, you can't do that. So, so it's still still not able. If you can't even if you can't do anything with with uh, federally uh, legalizing marijuana to, to the VA so, so the soldiers can get that instead of instead of a bunch of drugs on top of them, what do you think about what's going to happen when all these cases start coming in? The flood. This is this is insane. I leave I leave with that. Wow. Hey, Lil Mo, God bless you, brother, and you know all the best to your dad. What I do want to say, you know, I, I, there's so many good doctors and caring nurses, and you know, healthcare is still a noble profession. Unfortunately, the big systems have people captured. So, you know hoping all the best for your dad and, and they're caring, caring clinicians still trying to do the best by the patient. It's not everybody that's gone rogue or bad, thankfully. So you still trust in the good of humanity there. And, you know, God bless you for standing up and standing on principle. I wish more, if more people had done that, we wouldn't be three years into three weeks of flattening a curve. So, you know, thanks for your integrity. Thanks for your service and standing up for the right thing. So, you know, we'll we'll be sending, you know, prayers and good energy out to your family. And, and you keep spreading the great word. We're all in this together. No one of us is more important than anyone else. We're all in it together. This is about humanity. So keep up, keep up the great work. And, and you know, it, it's hard when, when family won't listen. You just keep loving them. So that's what's important. Yeah, unfortunately, this is a very common um, theme that we continue to hear at the Unity Project, and it's really decimating a lot of families. But I will say, um, you know, you seem to be the embodiment of what um, the true American spirit is. So I will echo what Dr. Cole has said, continue to um, spread the word, continue to be in the fight. I'm I'm terribly sorry to hear about your father. Um, Unfortunately, that is also sadly becoming a common um, theme that we hear. So uh, hang in there and thank you for joining the call this evening. Um, Dr. Cole, do we, do we have one? I, I know Mike, you've got your hand up. Do you want to make a quick comment here and then let's close it out? Yeah, I just have a quick question in terms of a resource for good protocols for clearing spike protein. Is there anything data-based that we know, like, you know, we were all on the train for hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, and other treatments, vitamin D. At this point, I feel like so much of the spike protein problem is subclinical, but I'd like to be able to offer the best protocols for people to help clear it. 
No, one, one of my favorite is flccc.net. The team over yeah. there is phenomenal. So, you know, anything that they're putting out. And Doc, Dr. Bean is a great researcher. I, I love all his YouTube presentations. He goes through the mechanisms. You know, they're, they're you know, the, I don't like the word detox. I like just health optimization. We don't know who is still making spike and who's not. Uh, I'm working on some lab assay, assays on that right now. A couple of labs around the world are trying. Um, so... You know, I want to say not everybody has circulating spike. We know that from the recent Harvard myocarditis study, which is very important. Um, most of the spike circulating tests are still academic and not commercially available. We're trying to change that. But um, I, I would say health optimization is key. There are a lot of methods. Uh, don't don't you know this, but don't don't jump into polypharmacy. Don't don't do too much big, big uh, advocate of the Goldilocks effect, just enough, not too much. So uh, th those are some of the resources that, that I rely upon um, from an educational point of view. Yeah, I was also going to say FLCCC. Well, I want to thank everyone for joining this evening. This has been an incredible conversation um, to all the doctors that have been on this panel. Damn, I, I say this um, quite often, but I, I do genuinely believe that folks like all of the doctors that we see in the organizations like uh, FLCCC and others, right. in the end, um, when history reflects on this, these are the folks that will be responsible for have saving, you know, having saved millions of lives. So thank you very much for everyone joining. Thank you to the doctors on the panel. Have a wonderful evening, everyone. <laughs>